just get right into it in uh, our series called Pursued, as God's pursuit of his people. We're going to be in Hosea chapter 8 and 9. Hosea chapter 8 and 9. Well, let me tell you a quick, quick story that kind of relates to the passage. So when I, just years ago, uh, when I was sleeping over at a friend's house, uh, he had a bunk bed, and I was on the top bunk. And uh, in the middle of the night, I fell off the bunk, banged my head, banged my, my, the side of my body. My ribs were bruised up. I'm pretty sure I got a concussion. And um, I wasn't feeling very good, but I just kind of tried to shake it off. And uh, my sister, who's in the uh, medical field, uh, she, she gave me some advice. And, and my, my ribs were pretty bruised up and discolored. And uh, she basically told me, you know, it could be nothing, but it could also be something pretty, pretty deadly. You could have cracked open your ribs. And so um, after hearing just her, her just uh, advice and thoughts, it really motivated me to get checked out, to, to get looked at. And I thought about it that it's because of her expertise, her education, her training, that her weight of advice um, made me want to listen maybe want to move, because I respect just her, her expertise. I wasn't going to do anything about it, so I didn't think it was a big deal. And in Hosea that we've been reading, Hosea, representing, who's really representing God to the people, has been telling God's people about the situation that they're in. Not concussions or bruised ribs, but in a state of judgment. And Hosea is, is, is and God is warning God's people uh, throughout these chapters, and the people, as we're going to be reading about, they, they don't take it seriously. Even though Hosea is a, is a true prophet, truly representing God, they are not going to take his recommendations seriously. They're going to brush it off like it's no big deal. But that's going to end up coming back to, to hurt them. And what we're going to be looking at in these next two chapters is just the, the, the different ways that Israel is in trouble, the different ways that they are in a bad situation. And we're also going to look at, well, how God rescues his people from these bad situations. Uh, unfortunately, Israel does not change. They don't repent. They end up being conquered by Assyria and taken into exile. And so uh, even as followers of Jesus, as Christians, we can learn from the dangers that, that Israel fell into, uh, but also experience the grace of God and how God rescues us from certain dangers that we can fall into as well. Uh, just to refresh your memories, right? Hosea is a book about the prophet Hosea who is coming to the northern kingdom of Israel at the time. There are two separate kingdoms. And calling them to turn from their sins. Warning them about God's judgment. But also telling them about God's mercy and blessing that they can experience. And such a... Um, the message was so powerful, and God wanted the message to be so powerful to the people that he told Hosea to marry a woman uh, who would be unfaithful to him in order to teach God's people that that is how um, they were treating God. God as the faithful husband was being cheated on by Israel. And when you think about it, right, Hosea is someone in the Bible that we might, might be able to make an argument that if there's anyone who understands God, Hosea would be almost at the top of the list, or at the top of the list. right? Because Hosea had to live in a situation where he had to marry someone who would be unfaithful to him. In order to represent, in order to 
to show God's people about how God feels and God's perspective on uh, how Israel has, has betrayed him. And so it could be argued that, that Hosea is on the, the top of the list as, as, as those prophets who really understood God because he was living out and living in a, 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 this, this broken relationship where he was pursuing his wife who was giving her heart away to other people and yet still committed uh, to, to, to pay the price, to, to free her from slavery, as we read about, and to bring her back home. And in these next two chapters, it's going to be a lot of judgment, a lot of warning, uh, a lot of the dangers that Israel is in. But we're going to be also looking at how God rescues us from these kinds of of danger. So we're going to start off with chapter 8 as we continue reading about these, these warnings. I mean, not, 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 uh, not too long ago, we hear uh, sirens going off on our island, right? Source of the month, beginning of the month. Those sirens are, are practices to make sure they're working just in case there was something like a tsunami or a hurricane that came. Right? Those sirens are, are meant to warn the people to get ready. Something dangerous is coming. And God in his love warns his people about judgment that comes because of their sin. So let's read about these warnings, starting with verse 1 in chapter 8. It reads this, it says, Set the trumpet to your lips. One like a vulture is over the house of the Lord, because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. Assyria is looming right in the background. To me they cry, my God, we, Israel, know you. Israel has spurned the good. The enemy shall prefer, uh, pursue him. Israel is claiming to know God, but they, they don't. Verse 4, they made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. With their silver and gold they made idols and for their destruction. I have spurned your calf, O Samaria. My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? For it is from Israel a craftsman made it. It is not God. The calf of Samaria shall be broken to pieces. If you were to go back and read about how the northern kingdom became the northern kingdom, they split from Solomon's son. And so the king of the northern kingdom, the leader of the northern kingdom, Jeroboam, he thought to himself, well, I don't want the people in Israel, the northern kingdom, to worship God in Jerusalem, even though that's the place they're supposed to go. God, God told his people to, to go to Jerusalem on certain feasts. Instead, he thought, well, if, if that happens in my new kingdom, if people from the northern kingdom go to Jerusalem to worship, then they're going to want to go back to the southern kingdom. They're going to want to unite again. I don't want that. So what Jeroboam did to, to try to save himself, protect his kingdom, his new kingdom, is he set up altars, two different places of worship, in the northern kingdom to, to prevent the people from going to the southern kingdom. So he tells his people, hey, hey, you don't have to travel all the way to Jerusalem to worship God. Just go to these other two sites that we set up in the northern kingdom. Way more convenient. Set up some, some calves, and we can worship God there. Because he didn't want the people going to the southern kingdom. But the people ended up right worshiping false gods. They ended up turning away from the Lord, and, and, and drove them, went against God's commandments to, to worship him uh, in, in, in certain times in Jerusalem. And so here that's what, what uh, the prophet is referring to, where, 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 where they were worshiping these false idols set up in the northern kingdom. 
And those effects trickled down to Hosea's day, where they were still worshiping these false idols. And so what are the consequences? Verse 7, for they sow the wind, right? They sow into their worship of false gods. They shall reap the whirlwind, judgment. The standing grain has no heads. It shall yield no flower. It, if it were to yield, strangers would devour it. Israel is swallowed up. Already they are among the nations as a useless vessel. For they have gone up to Assyria, a wild donkey wandering alone. Ephraim has hired lovers. Though they hire allies among the nations, I will soon gather them up. And the king and princes shall soon rise because of the tribute. Because Ephraim has multiplied altars for sinning, they have become to him altars for sinning. Right? Ephraim is another term for Israel. Were I to write for him my law by the ten thousands, they would be regarded as strange things. Israel did not know God's word. Verse 13, As for my sacrificial offerings, they sacrifice meat and eat it, but the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. They shall return to Egypt. For Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces. And Judah has multiplied fortified cities. So I will send a fire upon his cities. And I, it shall devour her strongholds. Here they are worshiping God or trying to worship God, but God is not receiving them because their hearts are far from him. All of this is just external religious practices with no heart for God. And, and the result is going to be they will return to Egypt, verse 13. It doesn't mean they're going to physically go back to Egypt, but they're going to be living life as they were slaves in Egypt. But this time, it'll be in Samaria, or sorry, in Assyria, the nation that will come and take them over. They'll be living just like the nations around them because those are the nations that they chose to seek help and deliverance from rather than the Lord. Here we see that Israel claimed to know God, but they really didn't know God. They claimed to know his word, but they didn't know his word. They were, they were hypocrites, claiming one thing, but living another. And yet God, in his mercy, he's able to rescue his people from hypocrisy. And that's what I want to think about, uh, think about today, is how God rescues his people from hypocrisy. Here, Israel did not return to the Lord in their hypocrisy. They could have. But they chose to keep living this, this, this fake life of worshiping God with their lips, but giving their hearts to their gods. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus died to rescue us from hypocrisy, rescue us from claiming to live a certain way, living outwardly a certain way, but inwardly living the exact opposite, putting on a, a face when really, really the opposite is true. Because Jesus died on the cross for our sins, we don't have to pretend to have our lives all together. We don't have to pretend to be close to God if we're feeling distant from God. We're free to acknowledge when we struggle with our sins. Jesus understands us. In Hebrews 4, 14 to 16, the Hebrew writer encourages us to go to Jesus with our sin. He writes, since then we have a high, great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. 
Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. See, because Jesus understands what we go through, he understands when we struggle with sin, he understands when we are faced with temptation, we don't have to pretend to have our lives all together. We don't have to pretend like we don't struggle with any kind of sins. We all struggle at times. We all have our battles against sin. There are times that we get into funks. There are times that we feel like, man, I, I just don't feel like pursuing God today. I don't feel like getting into his word. I don't feel like praying. And a hypocrite is someone that pretends that everything's okay, tells everyone they're doing great, when really it, they're, they're not. It's not hypocritical right, to feel distant from God, to feel like we don't want to pursue God, but then confess that that's got to be true. That's exactly what we, we, we need to do. We don't have to be like Israel who put on a face and a show, but rather we can come to God in our weaknesses because he understands us. Jesus sympathizes with us. But because he's God, he's able to help us in our weaknesses. It is freeing when we don't have to put on a face or we don't have to uh, put on an act before God. Because he knows. He knows when we struggle. He knows when we're feeling distant. And he wants us to come to him sincere. No mask on. And he meets us not with judgment, not with removing us out of his presence, but as Hebrews tells us, it is a throne of grace to receive mercy and to find grace to help in time of need. That's what we go to. So if, we ever, if ever we struggle in life and we feel like God does not want us to go to him, right, that's, that, that is definitely not God. That is the opposite of what God wants us to do. He wants us to go to him in our struggles. And that's how we can be encouraged and not live like Israel, who said they knew God and his word but they really, they didn't. We can be real about our struggles. God rescues us from our hypocrisy, but he also rescues us from our idolatry. Let's read on in verse 1 in chapter 9 in Hosea. Rejoice not, O Israel, exalt not like the peoples, for you have played the whore, forsaking your God. You have loved a prostitute's wages on all threshing floors. Right? They would use... Uh, these different threshing floors that was meant to, to harvest the grain and the barley uh, as places of worship to other gods. There's probably an implication, too, of just, of just the sexual practices that were also being done there. It says here, verse 2, threshing floor and wine vat shall not feed them, and the new wine shall, shall, shall fail them. Right? They're worshiping other gods, hoping that these other gods would bless them with wine and with food, with a good harvest, but they will fail they shall not remain in the land of the Lord, but Ephraim shall return to Egypt, and they shall eat unclean food in Assyria. Kind of reminds us of the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve disobeyed God's word, and God removed them from his, his garden. Here, Israel broke the covenant, and so they're being removed from the land. So right, there's very similar connections there. And it goes on in verse 4, They shall not pour drink offerings of wine to the Lord, and their sacrifices shall not please him. It shall be like mourners bread to them. All who eat it shall be defiled. For their bread shall be for their hunger only. It shall not come to the house of the Lord. Right? They will not worship God. 
What will you do on the day of the appointed festival and on the day of the feast of the Lord? For behold, they are going away from destruction, but Egypt shall gather them. Memphis shall bury them. Memphis is a location in Egypt. Nestles shall possess their precious things of silver. Thorns shall be their tents. Right, so instead of being in the land flowing with milk and honey, in the land of blessing, Israel will be removed from the land and will be in a foreign land in Egypt. Right, really, it's, it's, it's Assyria. And what will accompany them is not milk and honey, but nestles, like prickly bushes. Right? Think about like the pokies that are on the ground whenever, uh, when, when you go through certain fields here that poke your feet. These are bigger, though. These are thorns. This again reminds us of Adam and Eve when they were removed from the Garden of Eden. Right? The land itself was cursed and there would be thorns and thistles in, in place of just total fruitfulness. And so Israel would experience a kind of removal of, out of their land into a cursed place because of their rejection for God. They would not worship him in his land. And in verse 7, the days of punishment have come. The days of recompense have come. Israel shall know it. The prophet is a fool. Right, so, so here Israel is hearing God's judgments through Hosea, and here's their response. They're saying the prophet is a fool. The man of the spirit is mad. Hosea is crazy. This is foolish talk. Because there were other prophets prophesying that things are all good. That continue to live in, in the ways that you're living, you're fine, don't worry about it. There's no judgment. Hosea, he's a fool. But because of your right, great iniquity and great hatred, the prophet is, right, Hosea is the watchman of Ephraim with my God. Yet a fowler's snare is on all his ways. And hatred in the house of his God. They have deeply corrupted themselves as in the day of Gibeah. He will remember their iniquity. He will punish their sins. Israel came to a place where they relied on their idols. They relied on other nations, and they became so depraved that God uses this, this term, right, as in the days of Gebeah. Now, what is, what is he talking about there, right? If you're Israelite in this time, you'd be like, whoa, did he just use that term? We're not going to talk too much about the story. You can read about Gebeah in Judges 19 and 20, but that was just like one of the lowest points of Israel's history, where they just became totally depraved. In other words, what Hosea is saying here, what God is saying here is, Israel has become Sodom and Gomorrah. That's basically what he's saying. Israel has become Sodom and Gomorrah. And so they will be judged like Sodom and Gomorrah, just like the days of Gilbeah. Again, that's Judges 19 and 20, if you want to read about that later on. Israel needed to be rescued from their idols, from idolatry. They were worshiping other gods and yet claiming to follow God. And God is calling them out of their idolatry, idolatry and to trust in the true and the living God who was the one who provided for all of their needs. And yet they're attributing that provision to their idols. The good news of the gospel is that we, as followers of Jesus, we've been rescued from the idols in our lives. But what's an idol? Tim Keller puts it this way. An idol is usually, usually, not all the time, usually a good thing that we make an ultimate thing. Right? So even good things can become idols when we make it the ultimate thing. He goes on to say, we say, 
Unless I have that, I am nothing. That's how we know it's an idol in our lives. We'll say, unless we have that job, that title, we're nothing. Unless we have that, that amount of money, that, that possession, that relationship, we are nothing. Unless we have that skill that we possess, we're nothing. That's how we know if something is an idol. When we treasure it and we see it as ultimate in our lives. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus died to free us from the power of idolatry over our lives. Romans 6, 17 and 18 tell us this. But thanks be to God that you were once slaves of sin, right? Slaves to our idols and have become obedient from heart, the heart, to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves to righteousness, right? Jesus died and set us free from the power of sin, which includes idols in our lives in order to love and to enjoy and to serve, to serve him. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't struggle with having idols in our lives. At the end of 1 John, John warns the church to beware of idols, to beware of idols. And so what that means is that even though Jesus is king over us, even though we have the spirit living in us, even though we are children of God, because we still live in a fallen world, because we still have the presence of sin in our lives, that means we can still struggle with idolatry, with having idols in our lives. And the first way we combat that, when we identify idols in our lives, is to remind ourselves of the truth that those idols no longer have their chains on us. They no longer have its grip on us the way it did when we were not followers of Jesus. We are free from its power. Yeah, we feel its influence. We feel its call. We feel it tugging to us, tugging us towards itself. But the truth is, we don't have to respond to it. And we can run to God for help. So remind ourselves of the truth that we're free from the idols and then run to God for help. And if the idol right, is not something like a relationship that, that we're called to be in, right? Paul says that we're to flee idolatry. We're to run away from it. We're empowered to do that because of the Spirit living in us. We no longer, like Israel, have to be enslaved to it. And that is good news. He rescues us from our idolatry. And then finally, God rescues us from judgment. He rescues us from judgment. Let's read verse 10 to 17. Like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel like the first fruit of the fig tree in its season. Right, so God is, is now talking about when, when he first redeemed Israel from, from Egypt through the Passover and, and through the parting of the Red Sea. Right, he describes his relationship with Israel like a honeymoon. A honeymoon, a bride and um, her, her husband her fiancé, right? when, they, when they get married, husband and wife, the beginning of their marriage, right? It's just, it's ultimate high. We even use that term this day, right? When you say, oh, they're in their honeymoon period. What we mean is, you know, they don't have a lot of problems. They don't see the issues that that, that, that going on in each other, or they, they just kind of push it to the side because it's that freshness, that new relationship of, of being married. Right, and then you kind of know, oh, yeah, they're, 
right? They don't see any wrongs or any faults now, but, but sooner or later, they're going to hit bumps in the road. Sooner or later, they're going to enter arguments. But right now, it's at that high, right? It's that honeymoon period. And so God is, is, is talking about this honeymoon period where Israel was just leaning on God, depending on God. He rescued them out of Egypt, had them pass through the Red Sea. They were worshiping him with song. In this beautiful uh, uh, um, beginning, uh, almost like a beginning of a marriage. But it didn't, it didn't continue on. Where Israel became unfaithful. And it goes on and it says here, but they came to Baal or, or Baal Peor and consecrated themselves to the things of shame and became detestable like the thing they loved. See, it was at Baal Peor that a prophet named Balaam tempted God's people to, 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 to worship the gods of that land. And that false prophet Balaam led away, led astray God's people. Goes on and says this. He says, Ephraim's glory shall fly like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. Even if they bring up children, I will bereave them till none is left. Who woe to them when I depart from them? Remember, God told Abraham. That, that you will have descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. Right? God was going to bless them and they would become numerous. Notice here it's now the opposite. They will lose their children. Verse, verse 13, Ephraim, as I have seen, was like a young palm planted in a meadow. But Ephraim must lead his children out to slaughter. And it seems here in verse 14, Hosea is now, 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 now praying. He's saying, to slaughter, the Assyrian army is coming to slaughter them. Oh no. And then he says this in verse 14. Give them, O Lord, what will you give them? In, instead of being slaughtered by Assyria, give them a miscarrying womb and dry breath. Instead of seeing a slaughter by Assyria, maybe just not even be born. A miscarrying womb and dry breath. Every evil of theirs is in Gilgal. There I began to hate them because of the wickedness of their deeds. I will drive them out of my house. I will love them no more. All their princes are rebels. Ephraim is stricken. Their root is dried up. They shall, be, they shall bear no fruit. Even though they give birth, I will put their beloved children to death. My God will reject them because they have not listened to him. They shall be wanderers among the nations. Right, if, if we... Uh, or a church that did not believe in the gospel, if we only wanted to say, you know, just happy, fluffy thoughts, we would not read through a chapter like this, would we? Right? But this is part of the word of God. And just the seriousness of, of the sin of Israel, how they have not only turned their back on God and betrayed God and was disloyal to their idols, but they were actively living in rebellion against him in all kinds of wicked ways. And we read in previous chapters things like murder and, and, and theft and just outright violence in the land. They were like Sodom and Gomorrah. They were like the time of the judges in just great wickedness. And the effects of sin is, is death, that the Bible clearly teaches. Now, maybe we read this and we think, wow, like, this, is, this is so heartbreaking. Or maybe God, right, how he's so, so harsh. Right here we hear about children. And what God is teaching us here, I believe, is, is just the seriousness of sin. 
how sin brings death and how sin affects other people too. We see that in the world that we live in, where an abusive parent affects the rest of the household. Right? It's not, it's, not, it's not enclosed to one person. If one person is dealing with issues, it affects the people around them. And that's what sin does. It affects the person, but also pollutes and destroys the people around them as well. But here's what we know. Right? We're looking back at Israel's history. It's yes, Israel was taken away in judgment. They were taken away to Assyria. But what we do know is that in God's great mercy and compassion, he brings his people back into the land in order to rebuild their, their city, to rebuild the temple. God could have left them in exile. He could have left them alone. But instead, he brings them back into the land to live in there. We see both God's judgment and then God's mercy and compassion. Israel deserved God's judgment. And we can't fully comprehend it because we have sin in our lives. We look at God's judgment and we can kind of, you know, critique it and whatnot. But because our eyes are tainted, because we don't have the same vantage point that God has, we might not understand why God this type of judgment. Because we don't have the holy eyes that God has. Right? Hosea, the prophet, right, he understood in a way where, 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 where he lived out with, with his wife, just, just uh, the unfaithfulness that he experienced, the betrayal that he experienced, and seeing Israel and then speaking God's judgment. And here we, we look at this, and, and, and we, what we are called to do is to trust that God's just judgments are right, God's judgments are true, even in the times where we don't understand it. And ultimately, God's mercy triumphs over God's judgment. And we see that in the cross, where we too, like Israel, have turned away from God. That we too, like Israel, have lived our own lives in rebelling against Him and His Word. And we are deserving of God's just judgment. And God had every right to judge us. But in His mercy, He gave us Jesus. And Jesus on the cross took upon Himself the judgment that we deserve for our sins and instead received from him his perfect record of living so that we could be declared righteous in his sight, so that we could live in the land of promise, in the new heaven and the new earth that he has prepared for us. And then now he calls us to go out and to share about this good news of the gospel, that yes, humanity is deserving of judgment, but God has made a way to escape that judgment and to experience life through Jesus. And that's why we, why we celebrate communion. We celebrate communion remembering God's sacrifice for us so that we would not experience his judgment, but instead experience his blessings and his mercy. So as, as we respond now to the greatness of God in his judgment and the mercy of God in his sacrifice, I want to encourage us to take communion as followers of Jesus, to remind ourselves as we take the cracker and the juice of how holy he is, that God does not tolerate sin, that God cannot turn a blind eye to rebellion. Because he's a perfect judge, he has to punish sin, and he has to do it perfectly. And at the same time, he is our loving father, who sent Jesus, his one and only son, to die on the cross for our sins. And so when we take of the cracker, we eat it 
uh, and it represents his body. Jesus' body given for us. And Jacob the juice, it represents his blood shed on the cross so that our blood would not be shed for our sins. And so I encourage us to take communion and to worship God. And then another way we can worship God in advancing this good news through the local church, one way to do that is through financial giving. You can do that on our website at harbornewwano.org. So let's respond now to our great God, our great King, our great Savior in song. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you're a God who cares about humanity to the point of warning, warning Israel about the destruction that they're heading towards, warning humanity that they're headed to a path that has no life. But not only did you warn humanity, but you also made the way for humanity to escape their sin and judgment. And it wasn't through an animal sacrifice. It wasn't through calling us to sacrifice our own children. But rather you giving up your one and only son so that we would not give up our lives for our sins. So we want to respond now in gratitude for your mercy and in awe of how awesome of God you are who is deserving of worship. A God of justice, a God of grace.